Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, <laughs> but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 16, Godric's Hollow. When Harry woke the following day, it was several seconds before he remembered what had happened. Then he hoped, childishly, that it had been a dream, that Ron was still there and had never left. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Turkile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. A huge thanks to our patrons, Becca Ann, Tasha, Kelsey L. Martin, Carrie Reednox, and Charlotte Stoneley. All five of you are fabulous patrons and you'll get 10 points for your house which i believe is gryffindor i mean for sure it's gryffindor a big shout out as well to our local group in montreal canada text and tea leaves which is run by leslie Bramel and lucy luneau and it's bilingual in both english and french which is great because i've been practicing my french by watching fabulous french spy shows which i highly recommend so if you want to join our friends in montreal or any local group go to harrypottersacredtext.com and click on local groups so, Casper, it is your turn to tell a story through the theme of peace. What have you got for us today? Because we are all counting on you to create peace on Earth. <laughs> and mercy mild. You might remember that the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand was the instigating event to the start of the First World War in the summer of 1914. And I was always so interested to figure out why did that one shooting lead to this four-year bloody war in which 
tens of countries got involved and millions of people died. And at the heart of this situation, a sort of tinderbox that was ready to explode, that burnt all of Europe to the ground, was the balance of power that had been architected by the first German chancellor, Otto von Bismarck. He had woven together an alliance with one country to weigh out an alliance with another country. And so crisscrossed all across the map of Europe were these different agreements between different countries, which meant that they would have to support one another if you ended up in a war. And so when that assassination happened in Serbia and the first country declared war on the other, suddenly all of these other domino pieces fell down as everyone had to support everyone else. And suddenly we were in the middle of a global war. The irony was that this whole system, this balance of powers, as it was called, was designed to keep the peace. It was designed so that no one was stronger than anybody else, but it also tied everyone together. And as soon as one piece fell, the whole continent landed into a war. And when we think about peace, I think often we think about the absence of war. We think about, you know, we're not fighting against anyone else, so we must be in peacetime. But that feels like an insufficient description of what peace is really about. So I want to draw the distinction between that kind of military peace and the deeper sense of peace that I hope all of us have had a taste of now and then. Maybe when you're snuggling with your partner in bed or you're sitting watching over a landscape and taking a deep breath and just feel a contentment with the world around you, a sense of harmony and, and justice and goodness. Because I think if we if we create a peace that's only the absence of war, one tiny little thing can happen and we all tumble into conflict. Whereas if we can cultivate that deeper sense of peace, to me, it seems like there's a greater resilience to conflict that would stop us from landing in that kind of First World War situation. And so I want to think about those two types of peace in this chapter. Yeah. And I think we see that in this chapter. There's so much unrest Right. There's nothing peaceful about what the kids are experiencing. And yet, technically, they're like safe enough. They're not in immediate danger in this chapter. And yet we know that they are a tinderbox about to explode. Right. Like there is not a profound sense of peace here. Yeah. And I love your idea that a true peace has a kind of resilience to it. I think that that's so wise. Well, let's remind ourselves what happens in this chapter, because It's sort of a chapter of waiting and deciding, and yet there's some juicy stuff that happens. And I think it's my turn to go first. It is. Are you ready? Yes. On your mark, get set, go. So Ron is gone and Hermione and Harry are kind of both sulking. I mean, they're not even talking to each other. It's really sad. It's gotten so bad that Hermione is taking out the portraits of um, Phineas Nicholas to like just have someone to talk to at dinner, which is quite hilarious because then he turns up. So it's like wishing, it's like the secret for your favorite dinner party guest. And then Harry's like, no, I actually really want to go to Godric's Hollow. And Hermione's like, okay, we should go. And Harry's like, no, no, but I want to go. And he's like, oh, wait, you agree with me. Okay, so they go. And then they arrive there and then they go Christmas shopping. Well, not quite, but it's Christmas. And then they go to the War Memorial but it's not Memorial Memorial Memorial. Oh, just under the wire. War Memorial. Um, All right, Vanessa, what have you got for us? 30 seconds on the clock. Count me in. Three, two, one, go. 
So Harry and Hermione are just sort of sitting there. Hermione is reading and rereading, maybe uh, treating this text as sacred. And she's like, ooh, what do you think this symbol is? And he's like, oh, my God, Victor Crumb told me what that symbol is. It's what Luna's dad was wearing. We don't know what it is. And then they go to Godric's Hollow, and there's a statue to Harry and his parents, and that's really sweet. And then they see Dumbledore's family's grave, and then they see Harry's family's grave. And he's like, uh, Dumbledore was keeping even another secret from me and then they give the parents roses. Oh, the roses. That honestly made me teary reading it this time. Well, we're going to do it as sacred imagination. We are. So. Oh. Can we start by talking about Ron? Because I think in some way his absence illustrates that kind of theory that I was talking about, whereby his absence is a kind of peace, right? It's like the absence of war. The absence of Ron means that there's no conflict between the three of them, right? There's no arguing. There's no ones being pulled out. But the relationships are not intact. I mean, they're eating breakfast in silence. They're hardly looking at each other. So it it just feels like in this moment, at the beginning of the chapter, everything still feels like that kind of powder keg of of potential danger, right? Imagine if they'd been attacked right at that moment. It would have been a disaster. And so, yes, they're peaceful, but like it's not that kind of deep peace that we were imagining before. Yeah, and you see that at the very beginning of the chapter, right? They're like taking their time, Harry and Hermione, packing up because they know that once they move, Ron isn't going to be able mm-hmm. to find them. And so there's this like, hope and this yearning that I think can speak to this lack of internal peace that I think a lot of us are feeling right now, even those of us who are lucky enough to be safe at home right now. There's just this yearning for the world to be in a better place, for the freedom to be able to leave our houses and right like there can be a lack of that feeling of peace even when all looks well enough. I love that Harry and Hermione aren't even talking about the fact that they're taking their time packing up, but there's just so much grief and leaving, you know, like this spot is actually sort of a battleground, right? It should be bringing up all these bad memories and yet they don't want to leave it. It's so interesting because Harry literally says he never wants to say Ron's name again. And it suddenly reminded me of the way in which Ron is so insistent about not saying Voldemort's name. And that the absence of saying someone's name, right, or, or the not wanting to acknowledge the situation, just like you're saying, doesn't mean the situation is fixed. And that's what Harry and Dumbledore have known this whole time, that Voldemort was gone, but he's not gone forever. The problem has not been dealt with. And we can try and live by just pushing things under the carpet. And sometimes that's the best that we can do, right? It's not like you can always fix the thing, but you haven't gotten to the root of the problem. Like we haven't dealt with the underlying issue, which is that, you know, Ron and Harry have had this huge fight and Ron feels betrayed by Hermione and and vice versa. And on a wider scale that the wizarding world said, okay, he seems to be gone. So we don't have to worry either about Voldemort or even about people like him, right? When we look at people like Umbridge. So that lack of dealing with fundamentals it seems to be part of a kind of shallow piece. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to call up from what you're talking about is how a lack of peace in one place has such a domino effect, right? The fact that the wizarding world is broken directly impacts Harry and Ron's relationship. And these things cannot be separate from one another. When I studied group dynamics in business school, something that we talked about a lot was that if you are a person resisting a system, almost always the system is going to win. 
because it has more power, it just speaks to me of like, of course, Ron and Harry's relationship wasn't strong enough to fight this huge system. The problem is not with Ron and Harry. The problem is that this world is broken. Well, and that feels so real. I mean, I just think about conflicts with friends or challenges in a workspace environment. These last four years have just been like a constant stress zone, you know, obviously for some people more than others, but just that constant systemic pressure and and weightiness that plays out in personal relationships, but isn't about personal relationships. I, I think that's a really helpful, yeah, it's just such a helpful point to, to help us understand that lack of peace right now in our own lives. Yeah. I mean, I think we saw this happening at Harvard Divinity School. Right after Donald Trump was elected, there was a big fight at HDS over a tree. And it was very much about the tree. And it also entirely was not about the tree. I think it was about the pain of feeling as though Donald Trump was making a world in which nothing was sacred. I just think that we are all interconnected in more ways than are obvious. And sometimes these, you know, seemingly very local fights of between like Harry, Ron and Hermione are actually about global politics. And I love seeing in this chapter the different responses because Hermione starts to obsessively read this book, The Fairy Tales, right? She's rereading, she's rereading, she's rereading, looking for clues. Harry totally escapes. He starts looking at the Marauders map, right? It's like, I can imagine myself like playing Mario Kart for hours on end or just escaping in some way. And sure, he's looking at Ginny and he's and he's thinking of her lovingly, but what he's really doing is trying to avoid the situation that he's in because he doesn't feel like he can do anything about it. And so I hadn't even seen that until this conversation, like the different responses that we have to those stress situations is actually in this chapter as well. I nap. Oh, but that's always a good idea. Yeah, but that is, I get so stressed that I'm like, okay, fetal position, go. Go. (laughs) The other thing that is so funny is that Harry has this really self-aware line where he's like, I want to go back to Hogwarts, even though I know that it is so unsafe. And I want to go because there's good food and a bed also because Snape's in charge and I just don't want to be in charge anymore. And that is about a kind of mental piece that comes when you can start saying none of this is my fault. The literal text says other people being in charge seemed the most wonderful prospect in the world. And this is something Sean and I talk about a lot, which is we've both had multiple surgeries. One of my favorite feelings in the whole world is when the kind of chemicals start to flow through my bloodstream and I'm like out like a light and someone else is in charge. And it's just, honestly, it is like a feeling of peace. Now, bear in mind, those surgeries mostly were non-life-threatening. Like, you know, the the stakes were relatively low. It was like, am I going to walk again? Well, that's relatively high, but you know what I mean. Um, (laughs) but, But just that sense that like feeling like someone else is an expert here. I don't have to solve anything. My job is to lie down and fall asleep. And, you know, this is particularly attractive to people who maybe, you know, if you're a parent or if you're running a team or if, if you have a lot of responsibilities, that sense of like, oh, it's none of, <laughs> I don't have to think about this, has a particular quality. And Harry feels that weight on his shoulders. I mean, he's literally been attacked by Ron by saying like, I thought you had a plan and Hermione agreed with Ron. And so that feeling of not being in charge must be so wonderful. 
So Casper, my question is that, you know, we've been talking about the kind of peace that is the absence of war. And I'm wondering if this other kind of peace is a peace that is entirely internal and that almost is separate from any relationship. Because I think that that is the kind of peace that Harry is looking for in wanting to go to Godric's Hollow. Yes. He wants to go. It's such a funny conversation, which you mentioned in your 30-second recap, which is Hermione is like, yes, I think we should go to Godric's Hollow because maybe that is where Dumbledore left the sword because I read in Bethilda Bagshot's book, A History of Magic, that it is the town of Godric Gryffindor, right? Like she has all of these like tactical reasons why she wants to go. But Harry is like, I want to go because it's where I'm from. And like he has this spiritual desire to go. And it it seems like a kind of pilgrimage, a yearning to feel at peace and reconnected with this place. And it seems as though Hermione is on this mission to search for the external peace, to continue fighting for Mm. the non-war peace, whereas Harry wants to go to Godric's Hollow to search for an internal peace. And that's in the text. I think it really is because Harry says that he's going home. And I mean, he hasn't been there since he was a year old. He doesn't remember any of it, right? Like obviously his parents are buried there, but and yet he uses this word home. And I think it's extra important that he uses this word in this moment because he's lost his home of Hogwarts. And so that sense of contentment and safety and belonging that he's had at Hogwarts, he's trying to find a new place where he might feel that. And I think you're 100% right that that's why he keeps wanting to go back to Godric's Hollow. And I think he gets a taste of it, even at the very end, right? We see him crying. Suddenly, all of this grief comes out as he's standing in front of his parents' grave. And I mean, he he sort of wishes himself to be under the ground, under the snow with the remains of his parents, which is a really, you know, complicated image. But nonetheless, that sense of belonging and that sense of arriving and release feels really real. And for me, it makes that image of that contentment piece, right? Not, not just the absence of war, but a deeper, as you said, like a more spiritual piece doesn't always look like, you know, crocheting next to the fireplace, right? Although it can do. In this case, like it's this release of grief. It's this like, oh, finally I can unburden myself and express what I've been holding together all of these months. That that too can be a sort of expression of peace in a way. And I wonder, you know, if we think of tombstones as a kind of statue, like especially Mm. these, they're marble. We see those two kinds of peace with the two different statues in this chapter. There's the statue of James, Lily, and Harry that is this honoring of the battle that they were a part of and their bravery and their jobs as soldiers and for Harry as like a martyr and, you know, symbol in this war. And then there's the tombstones that says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, right? They are past the last enemy. There is just that spiritual piece of like they have no more work to do. They've done everything that they were meant to do on this earth. And the way that Harry responds to these two different statues, I think is an emblem of those two different ideas of peace. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. The other thing that's interesting is that all of this is happening on Christmas Eve. I feel like there's a whole other conversation that probably should happen on Witch Please about religion in these books. But we're told that Hermione kind of figures out that this is Christmas Eve because people are singing Christmas carols in, in the church and there's maybe some decorations here and there. And, you know, for kind of majority Christian countries, often there's this narrative that Christmas is a time of, of peace and goodwill, of charity and friendship. And of course, often it's also the time when families argue the most, as, as always, when families get together. But it I don't know, there was something interesting to me that all of this conversation about peace is happening with that kind of moment of time in the background where, yeah, people do come together and there's also more conflict. And so j- just that sort of double-edged sword about the narratives of having to be peaceful or having to have a certain expression or connection or or feeling at a certain time and actually feeling the very opposite. And that it always feels, I don't know, for me always Christmas Day feels like a huge letdown because it's had these like months of buildup. And so Christmas Eve is like the last happy moment because it's the, it's a season of longing, right? Advent is that buildup to Christmas is a season of waiting and, and hoping and longing. And then the actual thing arrives and you're like, oh. (laughs) I will say that I love being outside of the major cultural phenomenon of Christmas. Because what I get swept up in is none of the anticipation, but just of the goodwill. And I'm like, everybody's so nice to each other. And for me, it feels like it has nothing to do with anything. And I'm just like, oh, it's a season of politeness. I love it. Have a good day to you as well, sir. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Can I point just to one moment in the chapter that frustrates me and you can try to make it about peace for me? Oh, sure. 
Dumbledore. Uh, <laughs> okay, start with Dumbledore. So Dumbledore has given these children so little information that they are like, maybe Batilda Backshot has the sword for like <laughs> no reason. For no reason. Hermione Granger, who can solve things while in a coma at 12 years old, is now like <laughs> grasping at straws. That is how dumb and bad Dumbledore is. That's my story. That's my pitch. <laughs> you know what strikes me, Vanessa? I mean, we're going to see Dumbledore, his failures throughout this book. It keeps getting worse and worse for the trio. I wonder if he's ever known peace. I think he's being tormented his whole life about his failures, about the secrets. I mean, he's so disconnected from the world. I don't think it was even a conscious choice for him, like not to tell the trio things or not to tell Harry things. Like the fact that they share family members are buried in the same graveyard. I think it is so stoppered and constricted and constipated that it's like he's never known that deeper spiritual piece that we've talked about. And everything for him is tactical. And if he couldn't see a sort of tactical reasoning, then why would you, you know, why would you share it? I feel like he's stunted in this in this part of his life. Sorry, Dumbledore, forgive me. But that there's just something so missing. And that seems so obvious to us as readers that that why would he not have shared these kind of human details that would that would have given Harry a sense of peace? Yeah, I am really compelled by that. You know, as somebody who was raised by people with great trauma, Dumbledore is, this is like, he's like my grandpa in a lot of ways, right? Like completely stunted by the traumas of his youth and yet projecting this great inner peace. We think of Dumbledore as somebody who like, when he looks in the mirror of Erised, all he sees are socks. Like he is so at peace that he can stand in front of the Wizagamot and be like, hey, how are you? I'm not worried. <laughs> he stares at his own death and is like trying to take care of Draco. He like feels this great internal peace. And yet we can see the ways that the traumas of his youth are still haunting him. And so I wonder if peace for Dumbledore is like an admission of a lack of control. He's going to do everything that he can see a tactical benefit to, but he to a large extent has just let go of trying certain things. And so what what we get frustrated by is the way that the external world has worked on him. My grandpa was somebody who would leave his car door unlocked and the keys in the ignition and was like, if people steal, they steal. And you were like, great. But like, that was my car, right? Like Mm -hmm. he wouldn't pay bills on time. And he would say, what are they going to do? Take me to Auschwitz? And you're like, sure, they're not. But let's try to have higher standards for what we consider a bad repercussion, right? But he just was never stressed. There was no stress in this man. And so I wonder that this is a really helpful invitation for seeing Dumbledore, right? Like he lost his father, went to jail young. His sister died young. His mother died young. He had this like breakup with his brother. And then with Grindelwald, he had so much trauma by a very young age. I really love this invitation to see him. Yeah, just to see him differently. 
Vanessa, one final thing is that we learn in this chapter that in 1689, the International Statute of Secrecy is signed, which in British history is one year after the Glorious Revolution, which is when King William III came across from Holland and was put on the English throne as a Protestant to kind of stop a Catholicization of England from happening. And it's known as the Glorious Revolution because no blood was spilled, even though it was this epic change in a royal lineage. And it suddenly made me think, you know, we've learned about the Ministry of Magic. We've learned about how the minister is part, but not part of the British government, how the prime minister finds out. I'm so curious to know what kind of wizarding structures existed before we had a parliament, before we had a prime minister. And did the like royal court include a sort of magician who reported directly to the king? Uh, The king reported to the royal magician. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so I'm suddenly thinking about like Rasputin was, was actually part of some sort of magical world. It just gave me lots of fun imaginings about history and monarchy and wizard wizardry. <laughs> so Casper, it's now time for Sacred Imagination. And I'm really excited because the passage that I chose is at the end of the chapter. And so, you know, we're going to imagine our way into their bodies to it's Hermione and Harry, but they are simultaneously Hermione and Harry and Polyjuiced. So it's going to be an interesting experiment to try to imagine our ways into them. So just for context, they're standing there looking at the gravestone. Snow is falling. It's Christmas Eve. They are Polyjuiced as this like older married couple. So I'd like to invite you if it is safe for you to do so, to close your eyes, put your feet on the floor, really feel the ground beneath your feet, and imagine yourself as Harry, as Hermione, as somebody watching them through a window, taking a deep breath. But they were not living, thought Harry. They were gone. The empty words could not disguise the fact that his parents' moldering remains lay beneath the snow and stone, indifferent, unknowing, and tears came before he could stop them, boiling hot and then instantly freezing on his face. And what was the point in wiping them off or pretending? He let them fall, his lips pressed hard together, looking down at the thick snow hiding from his eyes, the place where the last of Lily and James lay, bones now, surely, or dust, not knowing or caring that their living son stood so near, his heart still beating, alive, because of their sacrifice, and close to wishing at this moment that he was sleeping under the snow with them. Hermione had taken his hand again and was gripping it tightly. He could not look at her, but returned the pressure, now taking deep, sharp gulps of the night air, trying to steady himself, trying to regain control. He should have brought something to give them, and he had not thought of it, and every plant in the graveyard was leafless and frozen. But Hermione raised her wand, moved it in a circle through the air, and a wreath of Christmas roses 
blossomed before them. Harry caught it and laid it on his parents' grave. As soon as he stood up, he wanted to leave. He did not think he could stand another moment there. He put his arm around Hermione's shoulders, and she put hers around his waist, and they turned in silence and walked away through the snow, past Dumbledore's mother and sister, back toward the dark church and the out-of-sight kissing gate. This is why I hate book seven, because I cry all the freaking time. You're so (laughs) cute. What did it bring up for you? So I was like Lily's spirit or something. She doesn't know it's Harry because he's in someone else's body. It's so awful. (laughs) All the time I was like, you know, I'm seeing these two people and I'm like, yeah, they care about me because there's a war going on and, and Harry's in danger and these people support him. And like they're going at nighttime when everyone's in the church. So they think they're safe to come visit our grave. But like they don't know it's Harry and Hermione and Harry doesn't say anything. And then I thought about how Hermione is the one who makes a beautiful wreath. And always that's a moment of like connection and, you know, respect and love. But now I was thinking, I don't like roses. He doesn't even know what my favorite flowers are. (laughs) So like all I was seeing was just this sad, just the desperately sad situation. And obviously I don't think that like Lily's bones know what's going on up there. But at the same time, just that sense of, There is such an absence in Harry's life. And even in this moment, which is supposed to be that deep peace and and release, which I think, honestly, for Harry, it is to some extent. But I can imagine that there's not that sense of closure for Lily and James until we see him walk into the forest later, because this is not that kind of connection for them in this moment. And that just made me really, really sad. had a little cry. How about you? Who did who did you find yourself identifying with? So I was like a person in a house nearby who happened mm. to be watching them. And I was buoyed by this beautiful thing. I was like, look, sacrifices still move people 17 years after they happen. And like, look at this older couple who love each other and are paying homage to this couple who sacrificed themselves so long ago. And yeah, I was really touched by what I was watching that I was like, oh, look, even though these two young parents died, it's still inspiring people. And I was also touched by watching how much this like older couple loved each other, which If I'm looking at an older couple, I'm like, they've been married 50 years and they're still holding hands and cuddling. And knowing that it's Harry and Hermione doesn't make that less sweet. There's also something kind of subversive about this whole scene because I'm sure that it's like illegal to go visit this site and honor it. Or, you know, like I can imagine the political significance that coming to the Potter's grave has. It's not just an act of personal grief. It's a it's a political act. And so that sense of buoying up someone's confidence who's looking through a window probably also has a sense of rebellion or, or supporting the kind of the anti-Voldemort forces. And of course, the person looking through the window might also be in leagues with the Death Eaters. So. I was not. No, nope. You were not. You were not. That was the other neighbor further down the street who was like, who are these people? They're not on any list. The other thing that occurs to me is that we see Harry and Hermione sort of being snuggly with each other in this moment, which is a comfort that Harry wouldn't have gotten if Ron had been there. Mm. 
Hermione's focus would have been split. She would not have felt comfortable holding Harry's hand in front of Ron. And Ron, very sweetly, would have probably tried to make a joke. So I I wonder if on some level this moment only could happen because Ron isn't there. And there is sort of a piece that was created. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with Ron having been there, right? Like, it just would have been a totally different moment. And sometimes a group of three needs to become a pair. You know, I'm suddenly thinking about how, because Hermione has had to say goodbye to her parents in this just horrific way, and obviously Harry's parents have died, the way in which Fred's death at the end of this book is going to totally change Ron. I've always been so suspicious of seeing Ron and Hermione as a successful couple, but I can imagine just the deep loss and grief of Fred, of his brother, is going to make Ron nearly unrecognizable, right? He would totally understand this situation in a few months' time, very, very sadly. Obviously, I'm not saying we should want people to die so we understand empathy, but you know what I mean. You know, I, I think it's why support groups matter. Like, you go to a grief support group sometimes because your friends who haven't gone through it don't get it. Yeah. And I I think that often it sucks and you don't wish that your friends have gone through similar traumas to you, but the only people who can understand are people who have also been through something. I'm just thinking how this plays out even in this moment because Harry and Hermione are not in their own physical bodies, that maybe there's a sense of permission, both for the closeness, right, as they shuffle through the graveyard together, but also for this grief that Harry can express physically in a way that maybe he wouldn't have felt comfortable doing if he was in his own body. I hadn't thought about that before, but that that sense of being with strangers in a support group, that actually, that can help us feel the fullness of what we're feeling more than when we're with people we love. That is so interesting. I hadn't thought of that either. And now I'm wondering, I wonder if he feels as though he has more permission to cry in this moment because he's not in his body. Mm, Yeah. Casper, thank you so much for doing this sacred imagination with me. I'm sorry I made you cry. I know. This was one of my faves. Like, it really brought to life this scene in a way I hadn't realistically seen those two different bodies standing there in front of the grave. It was so beautiful. Thanks, Vanessa. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our voice memo this week is from Tristan. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Tristan, and I have just finished listening to book five of the podcast. As I have progressed through the books, I have begun to wonder about the limitations of disregarding authorial intent. When we treat a text as sacred the way we have during this podcast, we essentially go in with a presumption that the text contains no errors. The characters can make mistakes and be criticized, but the text itself does not. For some background, I was raised as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly known as Mormon. I grew up reading the Book of Mormon as well as other sacred texts such as the Bible. Up until a few years ago, I largely treated these books the way the podcast treats Harry Potter. At a certain point, though, I realized this was damaging to me. I still believe the Book of Mormon and Bible are inspired, but I also recognize that these texts sometimes send problematic messages around things like race. This doesn't mean that they aren't worth treating as sacred. It just means that the writers were impacted by the time in which they lived. I see this also reflected in Harry Potter. For example, the book presents a largely unrealistic perspective that there is a clearly defined and nearly cosmic battle between good and evil in the world. Now, we can try to explain this away by complicating individual characters, but I guess I wonder if that's really helpful. Are there things in a text, even a sacred one, that can't be explained other than to accept the flaws of a mortal writer? As you near the end of the Harry Potter series, and particularly in light of recent statements by J.K. Rowling, I'd like to hear what your reflections are on the limits of treating a text as sacred in the way that we have. Thank you. So Tristan, I think that this is such a live question for all of us, you know, and I mean, with my work with Jane Eyre, it's a really live question because there is a lot of racist and sexist and, you know, patriarchal language in these texts. The thing that I think Stephanie Paulsell would say is not that we think that these texts are perfect, but we think that they can give us endless blessings And so the thing that potentially you're reckoning with in Harry Potter, which is also a racist, sexist, problematic text, is how can seeing the flaws in this book get me better at loving? And so, again, it's not that we think that the texts are perfect. It's that we think that by being in relationship with them, they can teach us. And if the thing we need in order to get better at loving from the text that we feel called to treat as sacred is learning more about the author, I think that that is a really important and valid thing to do. I think we all have different journeys for how we treat a text as sacred. I know that Casper and I, you know, we've been talking more and more about J.K. Rowling over the last few weeks, because right right now that feels like it's a necessary part of our process. So, you know, the question to us is always, is this getting me better at loving? And what do I need to do in order for it to do that? 
Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. Who are you choosing to bless this time? I am going to bless Ms. Hermione Granger. And this is for a moment that someone named Ariana Nettleman really helped me make meaning of. You know, Ariana is somebody whose love language is gift giving. She loves giving gifts and taking people out for meals. And she just takes so much joy in giving. So I just see this Hermione moment of conjuring the flowers as a gift giving moment of, you know, Harry realizes that his hands are empty and that Mm. he doesn't want them to be. And, you know, as much as these flowers are for Lillian James, these flowers are for Harry to give to Lillian James. This is really a gift for Harry. And I just think it's such a beautiful act of gift giving. And I feel I want to offer a blessing for Hermione, but I also want to offer a blessing for Ariana and for all the people out there who are just able to give gifts that are symbols of love and that feel like they are coming through in moments of hardship. You know, we we disparage physical items, but sometimes they can be talismans of really important things. So a blessing for Ariana Hermione Granger. (laughs) Well, I too want to bless Hermione. And I hope that's okay because it's for a different moment in the text. Uh, Hermione gets all the blessings. (laughs) She looks at this kind of scribble, this little mark that looks like a rune in the fairy tales of Beetle and Bard. And she has an idea where it's from, but this is the thing I want to bless her for. She doesn't say to Harry, hey, doesn't this remind you of A, B, and C? She says, Harry, can you look at this? What does it remind you of? And then Harry independently verifies that it is the same sign that Xenophilius Lovegood wore at the wedding. And so she has a second opinion, a second piece of evidence that strengthens her conviction that this is important to look at and it isn't just a a misshapen room. And so in this age of all of us having to be more careful about what we read as fact, whether it's on social media or uh, even in the news, this sense of checking her own biases, verifying with a second source before we think of taking action around something, to me was just really, really inspiring. And so even in this moment of stress and loss and difficulty, Hermione is a smart media navigator. And I I just admire that so much. So a blessing for everyone who's really careful about sourcing their facts. Oh my God, I love <laughs> Hermione. <laughs> You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and join our common room on Facebook to talk with other listeners. You can also join our local groups and the community of people supporting us on Patreon. We are so grateful for your support. You can always leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and we'll have two online classes running this fall that you can join, and they're starting next week. On Tuesdays, you can join Vanessa for Harry Potter and the Sacred Text class, reading The Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. And on Thursdays, you can join Vanessa in a fan fiction writing class where you will be stretching your muscles of radical empathy. Next week, Matt Potts and I will be reading Chapter 17, Bathilda's Secret, through the theme of faith. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're distributed by Acast. Thanks to Tristan for this week's voicemail, and as always, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Purcell.
I just had a realization when you said Snape is working on paperwork. Snape has to hide that he's a double agent from the portraits. So he's probably set up a fake office somewhere with no portraits where he can do kind of good business while he's pretending to be bad. Yeah, I think he I have no idea what infrastructure he's put on put in place to be the double agent that he is. He has secret meetings with Neville where they discuss strategy. <laughs> oh, I love that idea. Um, <laughs> Neville's actually the mastermind of all seven books. Dumbledore, nothing. It's Neville Longbottom, everyone. He's like, I lost my all, but I know the plan. <laughs> <laughs> he never actually needs a all. It's all a shtick. 